0: Good morning. If you've ever been to our house, you've probably been in the kitchen. And you've probably seen all the photographs on our refrigerator and all the magnets. And if you look real close, you may even have seen the uh, little far side cartoon. And over the years, I've been a huge, far-side admirer. And one of the great losses in my life was when they stopped printing that panel in the paper paper every morning. Uh, Every so often, I'm called upon to uh, teach at the Highway Patrol Academy in uh, Salina uh, before my peers. And uh, one thing I always do before I start to teach is I show... One or two far side cartoons just to show a little humor in the class. And so, not changing my ways, (laughs) I picked a couple of my favorite ones here. Okay, here we go. Now, as you can see, it says, we've got the murder weapon and the motive. Now, if we can just establish the time of death. And you can see the hardened detective there with his Tommy gun and the corporal there and all the clock shot out at the same time. It just goes to show that sometimes things can be so obvious in in front of us that we overlook these things. Now this I had to throw this in too, because I like this one. I'll get it right here. Okay. Now stay calm. Let's hear what they had what they said to Bill. <laughs> Always like that one. Now I just have this one more. Now this is the one. This is a cartoon that is on a refrigerator. And it says, today is the first day of the rest of your life. And how appropriate that is, maybe not down there, but uh, up here, today is the first day of the rest of our lives. Yesterday morning, as I was driving to a raised donut shop on 21st Street, By the way, they have the best glazed donuts in Topeka. Uh, I went there to pick up some donuts for the kids. And, of course, I had the radio turned on. And uh, I think someone had preset that for me the night before, but it had all the Christmas music. And I heard my favorite songs, Jingle Bell Rock and the 12 Days of Christmas. But so far I haven't heard my favorite funny holiday song, and that is Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer. But I'm sure sometime this year I'll hear that. But moving on to more important things, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that today is the start of Advent, and it's a beginning that we celebrate the birth of uh, Jesus. And this is one of the most joyous times in a Christian's life. But what I wanted to talk to you today is about something... That has caused problems in my personal life, or angst. And it's an emotion that's called anxiety. And uh, I wanted to speak to you today from uh, some personal experience. Turning to Luke 12:25. It says, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to his lifespan?" And in Philippians 4.6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, I know what you all know what anxiety is, what worry is, but I thought that it wouldn't hurt for us to actually get the definition from the Webster's Dictionary. Now the definition for anxiety is painful uneasiness of mind usually over an anticipated ill, abnormal apprehension and fear often accompanied by physiological signs as sweating and increased pulse, by doubt about the nature and reality of the threat itself and by self-doubt." Now, the word below that, anxious, the definition is uneasy in mind, worried, earnestly wishing. Now, anxi- anxiety is just a, another term for uh, old-fashioned worry. And a lot of people refer to themselves as worry warts. And in fact, if you look in the Webster's Dictionary, you can find a definition for that. But today, I want to give you a couple of examples how anxiety and worry has affected my life, and I'll do so in a few minutes. But uh, when I think about anxiety, I think about the times that we uh, worry about what other people think about us. I think if you look at your own lives, you can... Think back probably just tomorrow or the day before that over uh, anxiety or a worry or what someone might uh, worry about what you said or what you did. Sometimes we worry about the big tests coming up. I know we have some students in here who are constantly worrying about that aspect in life. And at times we all worry about our financial needs. And probably one of the most important worries, we worry about... uh, Our relationships with other family members. And sometimes we carry these worries with us for weeks or months or even years. And uh, we have a payback from these worries. These worries pay us back by weighing us down, sapping our energy, and uh, sometimes even causing medical problems to where you have to see a doctor, and sometimes even medication is prescribed for certain individuals. You know, there's an example of uh, a mouse on a wheel. If you've ever had children and you've had gerbils or or mice, a lot of times they'll have the wheels in the cage, and the mouse will get on there and run faster and faster and faster, but he doesn't get anywhere. And uh, basically that's what anxiety does to us. Uh, we run faster and faster to uh, meet the demands in life and usually trying to prevent uh, that next disaster on the horizon. And uh, we still don't have control over those circumstances. Turning to uh, Matthew six twenty-five 25 through uh, 34, there's a cure for anxiety. And Matthew 25 says, For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and body than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth more, much more than they and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory did not clothe himself like one of these. But if God so erased the grass of the field, which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace... Will he not much more do so for you? O men of little faith, do not be anxious then, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or with what shall we clothe ourselves? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore... Do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Now, the secular world provides us a lot of help in this area, from psychiatrists to psychologists, uh, newspaper articles. And I picked this up especially for uh, the students here, test anxiety, organic chemistry, (laughs) how often I can think of the late hours that Kristen has put in over test anxiety, or the many books that would probably and periodicals that would fill the Grand Canyon like stress and your child. Our Danny really is a worrywart and he always overreacted to problems. Why does he take things so much harder than other kids? Or, in our own community, peace of mind through possibility thinking. (laughs) Discover mental tranquility, the source of creative communication. So we see that there's all kinds of materials out there from from the secular world to even the Christian world. And besides that, you have the uh, daily talk shows of uh, Dr. Phil and Dr. Joy Brown and others. And if you've been to our home group, uh, we've been studying a book... uh, this one here, which is called, This Was Your Life. It's an excellent read, has all kinds of good material in it. And uh, if you ever want to borrow it, just uh, give me a call or Jamie and we'll make sure you get it. But uh, there's a poem in this book, and it's by uh, Jenna and Jamie Lash, and it's called, Beware, They Work Together. And it's a poem about anxiety. Anxiety. Anxiety and pride. I never knew they worked side by side. Anxieties. They pull our focus in. Around and round our minds swirl. On ourselves they spin. When I hold on to my cares, I live independently. Don't worry, God. I'll handle this. It all depends on me. Anxiety. It seems an acceptable sin. It does, until I realize the pride that I'm in. I don't notice the needs of others when cares are filling my mind. When I hold on to my worries, to such opportunities, I'm blind. Fortunately, God has a cure, a cure to set us free. He says in 1 Peter 5, Humble yourself, cast your cares on me. No better father could anyone have than the one who wrote these words, There is no one kinder. There is no one wiser. We must believe the truth. His will is better than our dreams. God really does care for us, despite how things may seem. So if we want our lives to be a blessing to man and pleasing to God, we must obey His command diligently. Humble yourself. Cast your cares on me. Now, if you want to be a person whom God uses, you must humble yourself. Now, real humility is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. It is said that pride is preoccupation with self. Now, from Moses and his experience with God, we learned a valuable lesson. And turning to uh, Exodus 4, 10 through 13. Then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since thou hast spoken to thy servant. For I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. And the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth, or who makes him dumb or deaf? or seen, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now then go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth, and teach you what you are to say. But he said, Please, Lord, now send the message by whomever thou wilt. Now possibly Moses was just being humble, but the Scriptures tell us that the Lord was not pleased. In the next verse, in uh, 14, the anger of the Lord burned against Moses and he said, Is there not your brother Aaron the Levite? I know that he speaks fluently. And whoever, whoever and more ever, behold, he is coming out to meet you when he sees you. He will be glad in his heart. Now Moses responded to God as if he was smarter than God. He was relying on himself and uh, on his own abilities. The point is not who you are, but that God will be with you. Moses was not thinking about others, but only thinking about himself. And God wanted Moses to humble himself by focusing on those that he was sent to help. But how can we humble ourselves and break this fixation with self? We must obey God and what God says to us in First Peter 5, 6 and 7. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that in due time He may exalt you, casting all your cares upon Him, for He cares for you. Worries, cares, and anxieties are like magnets pulling our focus upon ourselves. In First Peter 5, 6 and 7, the Lord commands us to break this fixation that we have with ourselves by casting our cares upon Him. Only then will we be free to focus on God and on others. Now, as we all know, Satan will tempt, to tempt us and try and weigh us down with these anxieties. Uh, and as I said earlier, what these anxieties do is they pull your focus onto yourself. They make yourself useless as far as reaching out to God and anyone else. And most of all, they stifle your spirit. Uh, And it inhibits our ability to serve the Lord. When we refuse to put a matter into God's hands, we, we basically say, I'm in control. And what I wanted to do now is give you a couple examples in my life where I was in control and not God. And one thing that sticks out early in my life is when I was 10 or 11 years old. I was having a great deal of difficulty in school, and I was not anywhere near a good student and uh, had a lot of problems in school. And my parents, by the way, were very hard-working people. But education was not on the front burner with them. In fact, my mother was not allowed to attend high school because her father thought it was more important to work at the grocery store. But anyhow, I remember one night I got up out of bed. I was so worried about my schoolwork. And I I got up out of bed I went into the kitchen and sat at the table. And I was there for quite a while, and I remember my father got up, and he came out. And basically, all I remember is my father told me everything would be okay. You know, this, what you hear now, don't worry, be happy. You know, we can all think about that song. But I had no direction, uh, nothing uh, about seeking God's help in this matter. And I, I just recall that so well now that uh, I can't even tell you what happened as a result of that anxiety and, and those worries about that schoolwork. I, I, I'm not even sure how that all came out, but I, I just remember the worry and the anxiety leading up to that. Another incident that sticks out in my mind is when I was just starting on the highway patrol, and this would probably have been 1981, 1982, somewhere around there. I had arrested a gentleman for drunk driving and he had uh, made some allegations against me. In fact, he had hired an attorney and our agency received a letter uh, threatening a lawsuit. So the Attorney General's office was assigned to investigate the allegations. We didn't have an internal affairs uh, section at that time. So they sent an investigator out from the Attorney General's office And this investigation went on for three or four months. And I remember many times at night I would go to bed worrying about that matter. In fact, many times Jamie and I visited over the issues and and what was going to happen. And uh, at that time I didn't seek the Lord's counsel, no direction. Like I said, it went on for three or four months, and finally I was exonerated of the charges. Uh, the gentleman had spoken to some people while he was incarcerated in, in, in the jail, and, and uh, the investigators learned about that, and so I was cleared of all the charges. But those are just two examples in my life where I let the anxieties rule my life, instead of having that direction that relationship with the God. I allowed Satan to weigh me down with worries and anxieties. And I think all you have to do is think about this in your own life for a few seconds and think about how many times you may go to the Lord about the small worries, the daily grind, but oftentimes... We fail to seek the Lord out when it comes to the major issues of our life. We just don't do that very often. Now, if you don't believe that His will for you is better than your will for you, it will be impossible for you to give Him the cares of your life. Anxiety is never justified because Anxiety is based on pride. Now, in Luke 21, 34 through 36, verse 34, Be on guard that your hearts may not be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life, and that day come on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth. But keep on alert at all times, praying in order that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. One thing I really enjoy through the years is history. Reading about history listening to documentaries. And I have a book here written by Stephen E. Ambrose, an historian, one of the most well-known historians on uh, military history. and I think that uh, that we have, or uh, I should say we don't have now because he passed away about a year ago at the ripe old age of 66. But uh, he wrote a book. I think this is one of the last ones. It's called uh, The Wild Blue. And it's about the men and boys who flew the B-24s over Germany. And, of course, the B-24 was a four-engine bomber. But uh, this is a book about George McGovern. Yes, the same George McGovern that ran for the presidency in 1972. And, uh, of course, now I'm on the other end of the political spectrum of Mr. McGovern, but yet this was such a a good read and a very interesting book that uh, if you enjoy history, especially about World War II, one I would suggest that you uh, pick up. But I found this so interesting because uh, George McGovern was based here in Kansas in several places, in Liberal at the Air Force Base there. It's where he learned how to fly a B-24. He spent time in Coffeyville, Kansas. And he spent time here actually in Topeka at uh, the Jayhawk Towers. And if you don't know, Jayhawk Towers was once an apartment and hotel uh, complex years ago in the uh, 1940s. And I find that interesting because for the last five and a half years, I've spent my time at Jayhawk Towers walking the same steps, elevators, and probably being in the same rooms that he was. Uh, To me, I just find that historically very interesting. But, uh, you know, flying a bomber in World War II was uh, uh, very dangerous. We lost thousands upon thousands of airmen during this time. And, in fact, uh, in the early 40s, Uh, During one raid on the Ploesti oil fields in Romania, we lost 54 bombers, B-24s. And uh, depending on the size of the crew, which usually ran uh, ran from 9 or 10 people, you can see how the numbers add up. So we lost on that one air raid around 540 men. But there was a piece in here, and... Once I read it, you'll see where I'm coming from. A little bit long, but uh, I think uh, it's really interesting. Eleanor was due to have her baby in mid-March. McGovern wrote her and she him every day. It took more than a week for the letters to be delivered. On March 14, McGovern and his crew were awakened at 4 a.m. The stars were out. It promised to be a clear, bright day. After breakfast, they walked over to the briefing room and joined about 300 other airmen to sit on the planks laid across the cinder blocks. The target that was marked this time was Vienna. The alternate target also marked was Wiener Nudstadt. If Vienna was clear, the bomb should be dropped on an oil refinery. If it was not, Wiener Nudstadt became the choice. The target was marshaling yards. The weather officer took over. He described the likely conditions between Serignola, Italy, and Vienna, Austria, and what to expect over the target. He said there could be a storm over the city or on the way to it, and the clouds might build too high for the formation to fly over them. If that proved to be the case, the alternate would be bombed. He thought the weather conditions over Wiener-Nudstadt might be better. He described the weather conditions to expect on the way home. Another officer mounted the platform to tell the airmen what they were going after and why. He explained the need to hit the refineries or, if necessary, the marshalling yards. If it was Vienna, he told them to stay well away from St. Stephen's Cathedral, the Opera House, the Palace, and other historic buildings and schools. At Wiener Neustadt, the marshalling yards carried north-south rail traffic moving to Munich, Vienna, or elsewhere. At the hard stand, McGovern inspected his plane as his crew got in. Then he pulled himself up and climbed into the pilot's seat, the Dakota Queen, taxied, took off, began to climb and circle over the Adriatic. The day was clear until the formation started to approach Vienna, but over the city the weather had built up into a storm, and Colonel Snowden decided it was too dangerous to risk losing his bombers when he couldn't see the target, which also added the additional hazards of possibly hitting the monuments in the city. He began a slow 180-degree turn toward the alternate. That made every pilot and his crew following Snowden happy. Vienna, as usual, meant heavy and accurate flak, while there would be none at wiener Neustadt. But in the middle of the turn, Sergeant Higgins called up to Lieutenant McGovern on the intercom the last of the 10, 500-pound bombs they were carrying had lodged in the bomb rack. McGovern thought about it for a minute. Landing the Dakota Queen in that situation would be suicide. Well, look, we can't land this way with a live bomb in the rack. Either you guys got to get rid of the bomb, or we're going to have to bail out when we get back into a reasonable distance of Sergnola. I'm not going to take this bomber down with a bomb in the rack. The crew left the bomb bay doors open, and Sergeant McAfee and Lieutenant Cooper went to work, trying to trigger the little steel catches on each end of the bomb, hoping to pry them open so the bomb would would drop. McGovern remembered it was scary as hell. If the plane suddenly made a lunge when the 500-pound bomb dropped, the Dakota Queen descended to 12,000 feet, several thousand feet below the formation, which was pulling ahead in any case. Then Cooper yelled something, and all of a sudden the plane jumped, and I knew the bomb had been cut loose. They were approaching the Austrian-Italian border. McGovern watched the bomb descend, a luxury you didn't have at 25,000 feet. It went down and hit right on a farm in that beautiful green part of Austria. It was almost like a mushroom, a big, gigantic mushroom. It just withered the house. The barn, the chicken house, the water tank. Everything was just leveled. It couldn't have come in more perfectly if we'd been trying to hit it. We couldn't have hit it as square. You could see stuff flying through the air and cloud of black smoke. Sergeant Higgins watched the bomb descend. He commented, it just blew that farm to smithereens. We didn't mean to do that. We certainly didn't try to do that. McGovern glanced at his watch. It was high noon. He came from South Dakota. He knew what time farmers eat. I got a sickening feeling. Here was this peaceful area. They thought they were safely out of the war zone. Nothing there. No city. No rail yard. Nothing. Just a peaceful farmyard. Had nothing to do with the war. Just a family eating a new meal. Made me sick to my stomach. Back at Sargnola, there was an easy landing. There had been no flack on the milk run over Wiener-Nudstadt. There was not even a scratch on the Dakota Queen. No one had been hurt. McGovern jumped into a truck and rode over to the debriefing area where the Red Cross women gave him coffee and a donut. An intelligence officer came running up to him, the same officer who had handed him a cable back in December that told him his father had died. This time, however, the officer was grinning from ear to ear. As he handed a cable to McGovern, he said, Congratulations, Daddy, you now have a baby daughter. The cable was from Eleanor, their first baby, whom she named Anne Marion, had been born four days before on March 10 in the Mitchell Methodist Hospital in South Dakota. Eleanor concluded the cable, Child doing well, love Eleanor. I was just ecstatic, McGovern said, jubilant. But then he thought, Eleanor and I have brought a new child into the world today. At least I learned about it today. And I probably killed someone else's kids right at lunchtime. Hell, why did that bomb have to hit there? He went over to the officer's club and had a drink. He was toasted and cheered, but he later said, It really did make me feel different for the rest of the war. Now I was a father. I had not only a wife back home, but a little girl. All the more reason I wanted to get home and see that child. He returned to his tent and wrote Eleanor a long letter. He did not mention the farmhouse, but he couldn't get it out of his mind. That thing stayed with me for years and years. If I thought about the war, almost invariably, I would think about that farm. Now I know... None of us have ever dropped a 500-pound bomb on a farm thinking that we may have killed a family. But I think all of us would have to admit that we've allowed ourselves to give into anxieties and worries instead of giving them to the one who can take care of them. And as I said earlier, we, we give in to our pride and handle these situations ourselves. But the key here is communication with God. When you tell Him what is on your heart, He gives you a supernatural peace. Now that doesn't mean that the circumstances may change. Uh, They may remain the same. He may allow them to remain the same. Yet at the same time, He gives you peace to get through that difficulty. While the weight may be as much as ever, it just doesn't seem as heavy. God may send a load, but he'll never send an overload. I wanted to read the last part of this in the epilogue. In 1985, McGovern was lecturing at the University of Innsbruck. A director of Austrian television state-owned station contacted him to ask if he would do an interview for a documentary he was producing on Austria in World War II. He wanted McGovern to talk about what it was like bombing Austrian targets. McGovern was not inclined, but finally let himself be talked into doing it. A woman reporter did the interview. She said that Senator McGovern was known around the world for his opposition to the war in Vietnam, and especially bombing of South and North Vietnam. Yet he had been a bomber pilot in World War II. The reporter asked, ''Senator, did you ever regret bombing beautiful cities like Vienna, Salzburg, Innsbruck and others?'' McGovern answered, ''Well, nobody thinks that war is a lovely affair. It is humanity at its worst. It's a breakdown of normal communication and it is a savage enterprise.'' But on the other hand, there are issues that sometimes must be decided by warfare, after all else fails. I thought Adolf Hitler was a madman who had to be stopped. So my answer to your question is no. I don't regret bombing strategic targets in Austria. I do regret the damage that was done to innocent people. And there was one bomb I've regretted all these years. The reporter snapped that up. Tell us about it. McGovern told her about the bomb that had stuck in the Bombay door and had to be jettisoned on March 14, 1945. To my sorrow, it hit a peaceful little Austrian farmyard at high noon and maybe led to the death of some people in that family. I regret that all the more because it was the day I learned my wife had given birth to our first child. And the thought went through my mind then and on many, many days since then that we brought a young baby into the world and probably killed someone else's baby or children. When the documentary appeared on Austrian TV, the station received a call from an Austrian farmer. He said he had seen and heard McGovern. He knew it was his farm that was hit because it was high noon on a clear day Exactly as McGovern had said. I want you to tell him, the man went on, that no matter what other Austrians think, I despised Adolf Hitler. We did see the bomber coming. I got my wife and children out of the house. And we hid in a ditch. and No one was hurt. And because of our attitude about Hitler, I thought at the time that if bombing our farm reduced the length of that war by one hour or one minute, it was well worth it. The television station called McGovern and told him about what the farmer had said. For McGovern, it was an enormous release and gratification. It seemed just wiped clean of slate. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for that peace of mind that only you can give. From life's little worries to life's major struggles. Thank you for that strength that you give us to make it through those tough times. For it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen.